Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, civics, and government for teachers, students, and citizens. Welcome, everyone, to another Saturday webinar, uh, TeachingAmericanHistory.org Saturday webinar sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TeachingAmericanHistory.org, or TAH.org for short, is the leading online resource for the documents-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. I'm Chris Burkett, Associate Professor of Political Science here at Ashland University um, and co-chair of our Master of Arts program in American history and government as well. Uh, The theme of this year's webinar series is Moments of Crisis. And if you happen to be joining us for the first time, let me just point out that our purpose is to have a, a thoughtful, collegial, um, for the most part, perhaps, uh, conversation among uh, some interesting thinkers and scholars. And uh, we encourage all of you joining us uh, in this uh, webinar to participate in that conversation by submitting questions in the chat feature. And as always, we'll try to get to as many of those as possible. Uh, I see there are a couple of questions submitted already, which is good, and we'll try to get to those at some point in the in the webinar. Um, I should mention that in the next week, you'll receive an email with a link to request a, cert- a certificate of participation, and also it'll include a link to the archived video and audio from today's webinar. As always, we try to draw on our conversations, build our conversations around documents, and we've recommended a handful of documents uh, for consideration today, and perhaps we'll we'll talk about those in the course of our conversation. But the theme today, the, the moment of crisis we're discussing today, is Bloody Sunday in Selma in 1965. And I'm uh, very happy to say we've got two very thoughtful uh, scholars and professors and excellent teachers with us today. David Krugler of the University of Wisconsin-Platteville is here with us, and uh, my colleague here at Ashland University, Jason Stevens. So thanks again to both of you for being here. Really appreciate it. Our pleasure. So what I found, I mean, there are a number of ways to approach this, and I'm hoping at some point we can uh, maybe, um, uh, well, get into the, you know, the, the, the details a little bit about the, the marches um, that take place in uh, early 1965, and in particular the, 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 um, the Bloody Sunday event uh, in Selma. And of course, I'd also like to, uh, at some point, frame these uh, the significance of these marches in the larger context of the civil rights movement, looking perhaps at, at how we got to the point that the, the, the marches were were organized and, uh, and 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 necessary in 1965, and also, of course, the consequences of, of Bloody Sunday and the marches uh, from Selma to Montgomery in 65, and in particular, perhaps talk a little bit about. Uh, the effect that those marches had on um, the leaders of the civil rights movement, um, in particular, um, the different approaches to, to this question, this problem from Dr. King on the one hand and Malcolm X on the other. So we've also recommended a reading, I believe, from Malcolm X for today. But let me begin by making a broad statement about the thing. What's different, I think, about this crisis um, from the other crises we've discussed in our webinar series so far is that it's it's, it's uh, well, let me put it this way. We've talked about uh, the sinking of the Maine. We've talked about uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor, um, the Civil War, 
most of those crises have to do with um, national security or what you know what a political theorist might call preservation, right? Uh, national preservation. And um, and uh, this crisis seems a little bit different to me in the sense that it rises really to the level of a moral crisis. Um, and I'm I'm thinking in 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 the in the terms that Dr. King framed uh, the crisis, especially in his 1963 "I Have a Dream" speech, where um, we are as a nation not living up to the moral principle and promises, if you will, of the American founding and especially the principles of the Declaration of Independence. So, so of course, you know, there's the crisis of of the immediate crisis of the brutal beating of, uh, of peaceful uh, marchers uh, in, in, um, in, in, in Selma in 1965. But, but on a, a larger level, this seems to be to be a moral crisis that Dr. King and others are trying to call to our attention. So how do we think about this? How do you go about thinking and approaching this question? David, if you don't mind, I'll start with you. How do you, I mean, you teach this, so how do you, how do you frame this issue? Well, <clears throat> I like to use um, Selma uh, as an example of the, the post-war civil rights movement uh, and its leaders and participants understanding that especially when nonviolence is used, there's going to be a violent backlash and that the leaders and participants have to first train and understand why their response must be nonviolent. But there's shrewd political calculation in that as well, understanding that only through crisis will the federal government be forced to take action. And I think the preface to Selma is the Freedom Rides of 1961, in which that pattern really establishes itself. The, the Kennedy administration is reluctant to act. They don't, uh, it doesn't support uh, the Freedom Rides, but, but as the violence intensifies, as, as the, the buses travel across the South, these are um, the um, desegregated bus riders um, organized by uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating uh, Committee uh, and CORE, the Congress on Racial Equality, uh, as that violence intensifies, the Kennedy administration must take action. So that the takeaway for a lot of participants in civil rights organizations and leaders is it is through crisis that we will bring about meaningful change. Um, now, I do want to emphasize, as I said uh, at the start of my answer, that this is really built around uh, the principle and practice of, of, of nonviolence, but there is an understanding of, of how real and meaningful a change can come about. Thanks, David. I'm struggling to find the unmute button. <laughs> yeah, so the, um, the uh, of course, uh, we know that there are different approaches to these things. At some point, I'd like to to get your thoughts on the involvement of Malcolm X, um, but on, the, on your point about the the, the expectation that, that a nonviolent approach to civil rights matters will 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 inevitably lead to a violent response, I was impressed. I think Dr. King talks about this in his piece on nonviolence about the nest, the need for those participating to to really go through a kind of training and self preparation. To be able to sort of, I think he makes references to things like they have to be able to purge. Uh, there's some sort of purge or something like this. Um, mm -hmm. But they have they have got to be prepared to kind of absorb the violence in a way and not not be provoked to a response. The entire the success of the entire movement in a way 
as a nonviolent movement depends on the ability of those involved to not respond with violence. And that must have been an, an incredible task, especially in light of um, others who were disagreeing with the nonviolent approach and urging people to, to resist violence with violence. So I, I think the point you start with is an incredibly important point, David. Um, when, when, can I ask uh, either of you, when did Dr. King become, um, uh, how did Dr. King become so prevalent in the civil rights movement? And was he always laying out this idea of, of nonviolence from the beginning of his involvement? Uh, Jason, do you want to take that? I've, I've got stuff to add as well. Well, uh, you might be able to give a better answer than I can, David. I mean, I can just say I know that um, that King is uh, involved in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC, uh, what, as early as, as 1957, I think. Um, and I'm not quite sure when the idea of uh, nonviolent direct action or um, right, what we're calling civil disobedience um, begins to to form in his mind as the uh, as the best response to racial injustice. Um, but I I will say you guys you guys this conversation so so far has been very stimulating because for a couple of reasons um, one Chris what you mentioned at the beginning about this being a a different sort of crisis I think is right um, your um, way of describing it as a moral crisis, I think is spot on. Uh, while at the same time, it does have to do with um, preservation, maybe not preservation of um, national security, like some of the other crises we've looked at, but the preservation of the, the American identity, the preservation of um, the ideas of the, the founding fathers as expressed in the Declaration of Independence, for example. That is at stake here. That is in danger of being submerged and totally defeated um, during the civil rights era. And King uh, fights back against that, fights back in favor, in defense of the founding ideas, but without actually right, using his fist because of this idea of nonviolent direct action. And you're both right that right, a lot has to go into, I don't want to say training so much, but there is, there is elements of training, right, of, of self-purification. I think he lays out like a four-step process in the letter from a Birmingham jail, for example, how we're going to prepare our marchers to not fight back. Um, because that to me, and the more I think about this and the more I, I, I read King and study him, I realize sort of how contrary that idea is to our most, our most natural instincts. That is to say, right, if somebody tries to kill you, you try to kill them right back. That's a law of nature. If someone tries to kill you, you try to kill them right back. And King and the other civil rights marchers who are with him, um, they resist that most natural of urges and they do nothing. They don't resist, they don't fight back, they do nothing. They, they take the beating, they take the punishment. But what was very important to King, uh, especially um, in light of what we're talking about here, Bloody Sunday in Selma, was that you have photographers there to capture it. You have the media there to capture it and send it out beyond Selma to the rest of the country so that the rest of the country can actually see what's really going on. 
and see these nonviolent protesters knocked to the ground and beaten with right, police clubs or attacked by dogs or have the fire hoses turned on them. Uh, King wanted that message to to get out. And so I think I, I've gotten away from your original question, Chris, so I'll, I'll stop talking here. But again, I think you guys are, are spot on in your analysis here. David, did you want to? Oh, yeah, just, just a that? little, yeah, yeah, little um, historical background. Um, King was, was not the um, initiator of the Montgomery bus boycott, which, which made him a national uh, leader. Uh, this was growing out of uh, Rosa Parks' spontaneous action, but uh, to um, um, not give up her seat. But she had done this before. And so there was a recognition among uh, leaders like Fred Shuttlesworth in uh, mm -hmm. Montgomery that they could build a movement around this. And they asked King uh, to participate. And initially he said, well, you know, you've been doing this for a while. I I'm, I'm relatively, you know, new. King's uh, in his and, early twenties at this point, isn't he? Yeah, he's young, and he's he's got a family, and he's he's starting a, a congregation, uh, and he's just begun his post as as a preacher, and so you know he demurs, but um, uh, Shuttlesworth and and others are are persistent. They bring him in uh, to great effect, and I think his his advocacy of nonviolence is is clearly growing out of his preparation as as a minister and as a Christian, but also comes from his study of the effectiveness of nonviolence in the Quit India movement, uh, led by Mahatma Gandhi. Mm -hmm. um, and, and King is well aware that that brought these practical results. Um, I think a good expression of King of um, the importance of nonviolence, and, and, and as Jason um, pointed out so nicely. I mean, it, it, it calls upon individuals to resist very human instincts, right? Fight or flight. I mean, you have to give up both of those very ingrained biological responses to threats to successfully do uh, nonviolence. Um, but in his um, uh, letter on nonviolence, he says self-defense is not a solution. It's just a response. And, and reliance on it distracts us and um, diverts us from our, our true purpose, which is uh, fighting for and obtaining uh, freedom and, and opportunity. So in, in the short term, people see its worth and they, they understand it's instinctive, but in the long term, it's not a viable strategy. Hmm. Yeah, very very thoughtful uh, from both of you. And a lot of interesting things have come up that I'd like to follow up with at some point. But uh, before we do that, uh, Thomas has submitted a question. Uh, David, maybe you know this, uh, the influence of James Farmer uh, on on the young king, do you know any? Is there any connection between him, uh, that and, and Dr. King's? Yeah, I think we have to give James Farmer and uh, the Congress on Racial Equality, which was founded in Chicago uh, in the early 1940s, a lot of credit here, uh, because CORE um, is really teaching civil rights participants the the principles and and practices of. Um, nonviolence and and James Farmer led workshops for the Freedom Riders uh, in in 1961. Now, of course, that's after the Montgomery bus boycott. But but Core had tried to carry out a um, desegregated bus trip years before the Freedom Rides, and and the violent response to it was mm. was so swift and intense that they they quickly abandoned it. Uh, but this gets overlooked in the attention um, that is deservedly given to the Freedom Rides. But we have to understand it's not something uh, that came out of nowhere, that there was precedent for it. And I think to, to answer Thomas's great question, yeah, uh, uh, James Farmer and Core had a, a great influence 
uh, on, on King. The SCLC, as Jason pointed out, was founded in early 57 by King and, and Shuttlesworth and other leaders and participants in the Montgomery bus boycott. Um, but at that point, CORE had been in existence for 15 years. Mm. You're well aware of, of what CORE had done and tried to do and, and its advocacy of nonviolence. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of influence there. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Great, great answer to a good question. Um, Larry just submitted another question that was kind of the direction I thought maybe we could go next. And his question is, he had been told that Parks' action was not spontaneous but was geared uh, to start a campaign. Is that not true? And I actually kind of wanted to move in that direction to get your thoughts, David and Jason, on on how King was able to sort of organize. He was a good he was good at organizing events and they and sometimes strategically to draw attention, including national attention, to this moral crisis we've been talking about. Well, I mean, I think it's a it's a little bit of um, it's it's more geared to start a campaign, but there's some spontaneity to to that night's decision. Uh, on her part, but but as as mentioned earlier, uh, she had done this before, and uh, Shuttlesworth and others were looking for an opportunity um, to organize a boycott uh, around uh, this sort of uh, uh, action. And uh, as as another participant has pointed out, you have other um, individuals, uh, other residents, black residents in Montgomery. Uh, who are doing this? And there's a there's a precedent for this as as well. In 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 Birmingham, Alabama, during World War II, there were more than a hundred instances of African Americans defying uh, segregated uh, laws and rules governing bus travel and getting arrested for it. And and we can go back to the boycotts advocated by Ida B. Wells uh, on for trains uh, in the 1880s. Um, and this is one thing I, I think a big takeaway for us as teachers of history is to really impress upon our students and, and give them a lot of content about the long civil rights movement uh, and that these specific episodes, these crises, uh, such as Selma uh, or Montgomery um, or the Freedom Rides, um, have a long lead up uh, in U.S. history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just, you know, one minor point in on David's excellent comment there about the, the precedent that King will go to and other civil rights leaders will go to uh, when it comes to providing some standard for breaking uh, unjust laws. In the letter from a Birmingham jail, King will even take us back to the Boston Tea Party as an example of as as an example of civil disobedience in action. That is of uh, human beings standing up to and, and intentionally violating, intentionally breaking what they perceive to be unjust laws, um, right? That's not, uh, of course, tainted by racial segregation, but the idea, King says, of breaking unjust laws in conformity with a higher standard of justice is nothing new. Um, yeah, that's, good. that's a great point, yeah. Yeah, and just to build off Jason's uh, observation, one of the things that's really brilliant about um, King's letter is the way he blends together um, theology and, and American history, yeah. um, where he's talking about Christ as an extremist uh, and, the, and, the, and the leaders of the American Revolution as, as extremists, mm -hmm. um, and making a powerful case that the, the principles uh, underlying justice um, can be found in both these actions, uh, and he, he very eloquently connects what, what he's doing uh, in that letter to, 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 to white clergy, uh, to these, to these traditions and these principles. Yeah, yeah that's a great point. Um, <clears throat> Joe submitted a question about a lecture somebody gave, Roy Wilkins gave, 
uh, I guess the, uh, the the point of the lecture was to say that the that Dr. King's nonviolence movement was designed to provoke a violent response. Is there any? Do you think there's any truth to that? I'm not sure if you can see the question, mm -hmm. uh, David. Uh, no. So it was the question is was was it designed to provoke a violent response? Yes. Well, I think the better way to think about it is that there there was this. Um, anticipation and expectation that there would be a, a violent response right. and and that that's what had to be planned for uh, and, and dealt with. Uh, I, I don't think King wanted uh, a violent response or, or believed this is the best course of action, but uh, clearly the, the responses so far have been consistent and even intensifying violence. So the, the planning, the preparations, and then the actions themselves uh, build, build around that. I, I think what we see with King and his leadership is, is this, this blending of principled response and goals, as we've discussed, along with a sharp and keen understanding of how politics works in the United States and, and given the composition of the U.S. government at the time, what would bring uh, actual uh, change. Um, we do see King struggling to strike this balance. Um, he meets with uh, President Johnson on March 5th, two days before uh, the Bloody Sunday March, uh, and he doesn't endorse the march because of that meeting with Johnson, and, and, and King is making a, a decision here, a, a calculated risk. Does he withhold endorsement in order to please the president uh, and win passage of uh, civil rights legislation? Uh, and if he does so, does that damage his credibility uh, with, with the people carrying out, carrying out the march, which is organized in response to the, the murder of a um, young man who is trying to protect his mother and grandmother from state troopers who are attacking peaceful civil rights protesters? Yeah, can we play through the nuances of that, David? Because that fascinates me, the political aspect of it. So Dr. King had, had met with, um, with President Johnson or spoken with President Johnson. Johnson was, was not in favor of the march and had asked. Johnson apparently had in mind already uh, the idea of introducing voter, the, the Voting Rights Act. Correct me if I'm wrong on my history here. And, and Johnson, if I remember reading correctly, had asked King not to endorse this. Is that what you're, that's what you're saying? And then... Yeah, because Johnson is t basically telling King, look, you know, these sorts of uh, events don't help us. So let me work the levers of, of power here. Yeah. And this is, I think, a good point to bring in Malcolm X and the ballot or the bullet. Um, and remember that Malcolm X delivers um, this speech uh, the year before uh, Selma, almost a year before, in early April 1964. Right. Yeah. And, and Malcolm X provides a, a, a really convincing breakdown uh, or uh, overview uh, of the problems with American democracy at the time. And he pointedly tells his audience, look, you know, African Americans are voting for the Democrats and believing change is going to come. Well, they have a supermajority in the House of Representatives in Congress, and we have a Democrat uh, in, in the White House, and, and, and nothing uh, is, is changing. So you have to quit being conned. I mean, he uses this um, metaphor of a con game over 
and over. And so it's a pointed challenge in saying, uh, we're trying to work through the system or others are trying to work through the system. I think he, he means King there. And it's not working because those who hold power don't want to change. And notice how this echoes King's observation in Letter from a Birmingham Jail that we're told wait, but wait means never. And I think one of the really interesting aspects of, of these documents is, is comparing X uh, and King. I think we, we so often teach the question, well, why were they so different when we should be addressing the question of what did they have in common? And I think there are a lot of common points in these documents. That's not to bulldoze the distinctions and major differences between them, but that there is commonality. And I think these observations or contention with the way politics worked at the time and, and the, the glacial pace of change and the fact that so many Democrats did not want to support civil rights legislation, uh, that needs to be taken into account. Well, that's, very, that's very well put. So that your point on the similarities between King and X in terms of their, their goals, is, is, I think you're right, is often overlooked. Um, and and the, your distinction between one distinction between them have being their, you know, Dr. King's willingness to sort of, to, to a certain extent, work with the political, through the political avenue, and his even willingness to meet with Johnson and consider Johnson's proposal. I mean, we know Dr. King ended up disagreeing with Johnson on this, right? And, um, and uh, I want to come back to that question at some point to see, because what we know happens is Dr. King, um, uh, endorses the march and, and, and you know helps to organize the march despite Johnson's requests. We know the events that take place uh, on Bloody Sunday, and we know that then Johnson comes back and, and then, you know Johnson's famous televised message to Congress when he calls Congress in session, when he when he really um, praises the efforts of civil rights uh, reform leaders, but also condemns the violence. Does, does, and then, in, in the, you know, and of course introduces the voter rights legislation, voting rights legislation. Mm -hmm. John, is, I hate to be, I don't want to sound pessimist here, but is Johnson taking advantage of the situation here? Or is this, do you think this reveals Johnson's um, agreement that Dr. King's methods in a way in, in leading or having the march and despite the possibility of the violence has actually been a good thing in, in pushing civil rights legislation further ahead. I hope my question made sense. I'm not sure that it did. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, I'm just, I'm, I'm asking about Johnson, the Johnson after the, the events of Bloody Sunday. I think you've had two marches by the time Dr. Uh, by the time President Johnson in introduces the legislation mm -hmm. to Congress, but yeah, you do you do have two marches. The one that takes place on on Sunday, on Bloody Sunday, which is I think March seventh, um, which had originally been planned right to go through that what was it, like a fifty four mile march from uh, Selma to Montgomery, which is stopped. Um, at the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And then a couple of weeks later, a few weeks later, I'm, I'm, maybe you guys can correct me on my history here. They, they organize another march that does take four days and they do go up the, uh, the steps of the state capitol after having walked from uh, Selma. And as far as LBJ's response or LBJ's take on, uh, on the violence I would I would go back to what King says in that piece on 
on nonviolence when he talks about where where is violence taking place how is violence happening who are who are the the victims of of violence and he says it's the peaceful protesters very rarely is right there a, a a white person who is uh who is harmed physically during these marches it's always the nonviolent peaceful protesters who are being violated who are having violence done against them very rarely is it a white person king says and he's he's absolutely right about that um it's the the peaceful protesters who are on the the receiving end of 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 the violence um and sorry chris your your point about um lb uh, about lbj was yeah. that uh just refresh my memory here sorry. Me, i should clarify it i didn't ask it very clearly because thoughts are forming in light of what you're both saying so johnson had had um had already come up with a plan for introducing voting the voting rights legislation before the selma Mar the first selma march um met with Dr. King, suggested that it wouldn't help our cause. Dr. King decided that it would because, again, in light of the things you and David have been saying, King knew that things like this, including violent responses, not that he was provoking them, but that, the, that if there was a violent response would help to draw national attention to the severity of the crisis and the abuse. King thought that it, those things, of course, did help the cause and would help the cause, especially in light of uh, Jason, I think you mentioned earlier the fact that new photographers are there capturing, you know, uh, images, the famous image of, uh, of Amelia Boynton, for example, you know, yeah. brutally beaten and things like this. I, so let me, let me uh, put it this way. Despite the fact that King went ahead with it, uh, Johnson then introduced the, the voting rights legislation to Congress, uh, what he called a joint session of Congress, introduced it, and praised Dr. King's efforts and condemned the violence and, uh, but really praised the march in that speech to Congress. Uh, we should have added that as a document. I don't know why I didn't think of that. I should have included Johnson's speech, but he praised the, the, the marches in Selma as a turning point, he says, I think is yeah. how he calls it. Uh, and he places it on par with other great turning points in American history. Um, I believe he compares it to the you know, to Appomattox, the surrender of the South at Appomattox. So my point is, I, 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 I wasn't sure if Johnson was simply using the events of Selma as a way to, you know, to push the voting rights legislation further on Congress. But it seems to me that the march did, in fact, add a, a, ten, a, a sense of urgency mm -hmm. uh, and put some more pressure on Congress to act more quickly after he had introduced this legislation. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the events of, of Bloody Sunday, of what happened in, in Selma, it, it doesn't make the what will become the 1965 Voting Rights Act inevitable, but it certainly propels it. It certainly uh, creates a, a, a sense of, of urgency. It might have taken – in fact, I think it would have taken much longer um, in order to be brought to the floor of Congress in order to be made law um, without the, the events uh, – that we that we see that every American sees taking place across uh, the country, uh, there in Selma on Bloody Sunday. Because I think um, that there was the night that it appeared. Um, that is the the video from the march. It appeared during the showing of some movie that at the moment escapes me that was being shown on prime time 
on television for the first time and it was it was a big deal a lot of americans were tuning in and this movie was interrupted by footage out of selma so almost everybody saw it the day that it happened um and that's it it really helps to to galvanize the nation into uh into what will be into what will become the the voting rights act of 1965 yeah very good yeah just 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 to add on very quickly um there's there's three marches uh the first is on 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 sunday march 7th uh and king is not present for that he's in atlanta uh, and that's when the, the attacks are, are so fierce. And as Jason pointed out, this is this is um, national and, and international uh, coverage. And then on uh, there was a, a a march that was also incomplete uh, a, a couple days later. And then King led the march from March 21st to March 25th, which completed the 50 mile or so distance on the highway between Selma and, and Montgomery. Uh, and I think one thing to understand here, too, is that this is not Johnson's prefer- preferred way to move legislation through Congress to be pressured to do so by these events. There's a Cold War context to this. The Soviet Union had been hammering the United States for, for decades over its um, um, refusal uh, to uh, fulfill democracy for all its citizens on the basis of race. Uh, and so there's great irony there, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in, in March 1965 is also the month that the United States begins sending large numbers of combat forces to Vietnam. Uh, and, and, you know, that's 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 being noticed by by King and by Malcolm X, too. There, there's another similarity between X and, and, and King, what they say about uh, Vietnam. Um, and I think, you know, for Johnson, the, the preferred method is how he got the Civil Rights Act through. Uh, in 1964, where this was a lot of negotiations and cutting deals, and, and he's in control and working with members of Congress, um, and, and the external events are not so um, immediate and urgent. Um, but yeah, I mean, the the the, the bottom line is that uh, what happens at Selma pushes the president to use his considerable influence in in the halls of Congress to to finish this. Yeah. So while we're on the topic of the politics of this, uh, Chris had submitted a question earlier about the impact of, of Bloody Sunday on, he asked specifically about conservative congressmen, but, and I think that's an interesting question. What it, can, David, can you talk to the politics of, or to the, the attitudes of Congress at the time and, um, and the effect that this event had on their willingness or unwillingness to push ahead with civil rights legislation? Well, I don't know a lot about the vote counts on on, on voting rights. Um, I know more about how the how it shook out with this the Civil Rights Act, but 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 I can say that what's happening here is that the northern liberal wing of, of the Democratic Party is is pushing this through, and then they've got some momentum from the success uh, of the Civil Rights Act uh, of nineteen sixty four. And, and through passage of the, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Johnson has, has some leverage as well. I mean, that, that is a huge victory uh, over uh, conservative congressmen. And, and when we say conservative congressmen and conservative senators, in 1964-65, we're talking about Southern Democrats. Mm-hmm. The Dixiecrats, right? The Dixiecrats, right. Uh, because uh, they can override even a filibuster uh, by, by the minority uh, party. Now, in 1964, 
uh, Johnson and Democrats had worked to win Republican uh, support. They were, they were keen to have Everett Dirksen, the Republican senator from Illinois, uh, on board uh, for uh, the 1964 law. And, and, and overtures like that are continuing um, in, in, in 65. But the real challenge is to uh, win over uh, the so-called Dixiecrats. And, and again, to come back to the, to the Malcolm X article, I mean, he really pulls away the, the pretense and the subterfuge of, of saying Dixiecrats. I mean, he says a Dixiecrat is a Democrat, right? You know, if, if, if a Northern liberal says, well, we can't do anything, we'd like to help, but, but the Dixiecrats are standing in the way, X says, look, they're just saying the people who are part of their party are in the way and they're not getting anything done. You have to understand that's, that's the reality of it. Mm. Yeah, and, uh, and, so Malcolm this... X, and Malcolm X says, well, look, if you want a political solution, expel, if you want to work within the political parameters, right, expel the, the Southern Democrats, expel them from Congress because they're the ones who are filibustering, who are holding this up. Um, they're the real political problem, at least on the floor of Congress. Um, which, of course, is why Malcolm X says, look, I'm not a Democrat, I'm not a Republican, I'm not even an American. Yeah, that last part is important. It's really interesting. I'd like to come back to that for again, if you don't mind, because that's in direct contrast to King, uh, up to the, at least up to this point, right? Dr. King places the, um, the, the con you know, frames this whole issue, this crisis, in the context of what it means to be an American. As you said earlier, Jason, the American identity, right? And again, thinking back to uh, the, the I Have a Dream speech, and even in his great letter from a Birmingham jail, King frames this problem as a problem for Americans. Mm -hmm. He thinks of himself and others um, you know, struggling and moving uh, for these rights as Americans, mm -hmm. whereas Malcolm X takes that step and breaks away mm -hmm. and says, I don't even think of myself as an American anymore. But before, because I, I wanted to play with that distinction again. I think that's an important distinction between them, but just one quick comment, perhaps, unless you want to weigh in on this, either of you. What you're making me think of here is that this, uh, in terms of political divisions uh, between Republicans and Democrats, this issue is one that really kind of does blur those party lines, it seems to me. Because again, you have Republicans for and against and Democrats for and against. So in a sense, that does lend some credence to Malcolm X's claim that, you know, both the parties, neither of the parties are sufficient to, I can't, I can't turn to either party, right, for help. So we have to just find ways to bypass the, the traditional, old-fashioned, broken, corrupt political routes to fix these problems. So I'm wondering, could you, either of you talk about... Um, uh, one of uh, a couple of things. What, what are first of all? I guess why does Malcolm X reject the idea of being an American, and how does that play out in in his thought as opposed to Dr. King's? And second, what kinds of specific things is Dr. King? I'm sorry, is Malcolm X calling for as alternatives to the not just the nonviolent method of uh, of Dr. King, but Dr. King's willingness to work through through the political uh, system to bring about change. Uh, sure, yeah. Um, uh, to answer the first question uh, first, Malcolm X on, on page three, at the top of page three uh, and the bottom of page two of, of the document, is, is really calling out an obvious fact about national identity in the United States um, in the early 1960s, that at that time and for a long time to be American is to be white. And, you know, he, he talks about immigrants coming. And, and saying, you know, if you come as an immigrant, 
you're from Europe and you're white, it's pretty easy to become an American. But if you have African ancestry and, and your people have been in, in what's the United States for generations, for centuries, you're still not accepted. And here we have a sharp contrast with, with King, who is putting forward the, the non-racial aspects uh, or guarantees, principles uh, of the United States and its charters of, of freedom, and, and saying again and again, these should not be racialized. Um, if we take them for what they mean, if we follow through on the meaning, then they can't be racialized. And just quickly, I want to point out that uh, the Brown v. Board decision, which reverses Plessy v. Ferguson on the TAH website, we have the Plessy v. Ferguson um, ruling, and we have a great dissent from um, Justice Harlan, who in 1896 said exactly the same thing King is saying uh, half a century later, uh, that the Constitution is supposed to be colorblind. For Malcolm X, these are abstractions um, that better belong to a debate society than, than the real world that he wants to, to operate in. He's saying, you know, the reality is these principles are not being met. So to get to your second question, Chris, what, what is he proposing as an alternative? Uh, on page uh, six, I'll, I'll go ahead and read um, X's own answer. Uh, so where do we go from here? First, we need some friends. We need some new allies. The entire civil rights struggle needs a new interpretation, a broader interpretation. We need to look at this civil rights thing from another angle, from the inside as well as from the outside, end quote. And for X, the outside is, let's make this an international movement. I mean, we have the numbers in the world, if you, if you count all the, 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 the people of the, the nations of Africa who are breaking free. They're succeeding, X says. We're not here in the United States. Why is that? Ask yourself why that is. What if we're able to bring uh, the Chinese uh, on our side? There's 800 uh, million of them. So he's advocating an international movement and a, and a, um, a post-World War II version of Pan-Africanism um, that was also being advocated by many African-Americans in the late 1890s and, and early 20th century. So again, we see this, this longer pattern. That's fascinating. I, 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 I did not pick up on that aspect of Malcolm X's argument because I had always thought, I mean, I, I know he's talking about black nationalism in a sense within the borders of the United States, um, setting up a, a sort of, uh, not to use, these aren't his terms, but, but maybe a sort of quasi- political system that's an alternative to the existing political system, a network of black politics and business and, and these kinds of things. I had not thought about the international aspect of it before. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. That's very fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, Laura just submitted a, 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 a very interesting question uh, that maybe either of you would want to take a stab at. Would Dr. King have been as successful if there weren't a Malcolm X? In other words, were white politicians in society in general more willing to negotiate with Dr. King because of uh, because the alternative in Malcolm X was seen as so much more extreme? This is this is a hypothetical in a way, but sure, but. no, but it's it's a very good question, and my thought is that um, the answer is no, um, and and that's because of um, Malcolm X's assassination in in 1965. But I think we can rephrase Laura's question and, and, and approach it in another way. Did the black power movement that begins um, or coheres, I should say, in 1966 and then really manifests itself uh, 
nationally with um, the establishment of the Black Panthers. Did that make white leaders and, and elected officials more agreeable to working with, with King? And, and again, the timing is important here because King himself, as we know, was assassinated in April of 1968. So there's, there's a very short time period in which black power is, is gaining momentum and, and King is, is still active. And when we look at what King was doing in the last two years of his life in 67 and 68, he is moving toward, um, he's continuing to fight for racial justice, but as he points out in his uh, nonviolent letter toward the end, you know, we have to organize the unemployed. We have to raise the standard of, uh, of living. The Constitution assures the right to vote, but there's no such assurance of the right to adequate housing or the right to an adequate income. So he was organizing a poor people's march on Washington at the time of his assassination, and this was going to be a, uh, about the, all the poor of the United States, not just uh, African Americans. And so I think, again, that the answer is that he was experiencing a lot of resistance to that. Um, Johnson was was very angry with him because he had spoken out against the Vietnam War in a famous speech uh, in New York during this, this period. So uh, I, I think that um, on the whole, the answer is, 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 is no, that it, it didn't propel um, white institutions and organizations and leaders to, to yield to King because they were worried about uh, the alternative. Mm. Uh, and, and, very much be interested in what you and uh, Jason think on, uh, of that, because I think this is a highly debatable point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it is, and it's really interesting because, I mean, I've, I've, heard, it, I've heard it said, and David, you can, and Chris, you guys can weigh in on this, I've heard it said that right towards the end of his life, King becomes um, more extreme, that is, he doesn't go, he doesn't abandon civil disobedience, he doesn't abandon nonviolent direct action, um, he doesn't become an advocate of the black power movement um but that he he does become uh more extreme in his in his political views whereas malcolm x towards the end of his life the last year of his life is begins to become much more moderate in his views is that is that right well i wouldn't say that x becomes more moderate but i as, as i said earlier i think there are a lot of commonalities between x and and king Mm. Um, and, you know, they never melded their movements and, and, and uh, King continued to advise against the black power movement uh, and uh, armed self-defense. Um, but, but just to point out one of these commonalities, in the Ballad of the Bullet uh, on page 7, uh, Malcolm X says, Who opposes you in carrying out the law? The police department itself. When you demonstrate against segregation... The law is on your side, and anyone who stands in the way is not the law any longer. They, meaning the police, are breaking the law. They are not representatives of the law. Compare this to King's eloquent defense of uh, protesting and, and disobeying unjust laws. Yeah. Uh, Actually, can we read a bit of that part from his letter on Birmingham please. jail, David? Yeah, please feel free. Um, Great letter. Can I just mention, yeah. it's, the, it's the most commonly referenced document on our Teaching American History database, by the way, Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail. Yes, it is. Yeah, and, and for good reason. Uh, he says, this is paragraph 15, you express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. 
this is certainly a legitimate concern. Since we do so diligently urge people to obey the Supreme Court's decision of 1954, of course, referring to Brown v. Board there, outlawing segregation into public schools, at first glance, it may seem rather paradoxical for us consciously to break laws. One may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. And that seems to be what, what Malcolm X is getting at when he talks about um, the, the police as representatives of the law, that they're, if they're there enforcing segregation, if they are there preventing um, black Americans from voting, they are no longer true representatives of the law, that they have abandoned that. They have taken, they, they are now the enemies of the law. And, and you, Malcolm X speaking to his followers, you are the, 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 the advocates of, of just law, of true law. Yeah, but, but Dr. King is saying there is such a, the, the, the problem with the, with the law as it exists is, is it's not the idea of what the law should be. It's, it's the sort of bastardization of the law, the corruption of the law, right? Yes, yes. As you're pointing out nicely in that paragraph, whereas it seems to me that Malcolm X is saying it, the, the law is corrupt to its very core, and including the very idea of, of the law in a way. Mm. Hmm. Um, it's not just that, 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 that it's a, it's, it, it, it reminds me of um, Dr. Or, sorry, Frederick Douglass's uh, uh, analogy of, of Southern use of scripture to justify slavery. If you remember hmm. Frederick Douglass saying, you know, Southerners uh, in his day had been using scripture to justify slavery, but you don't say, ah, oh, well, let's throw the Bible out, right? Hmm. You have to distinguish between um a true understanding of things and a and a, a a a corrupted or false use of things for for certain wrong purposes. It seems to me, Dr. King is making that same distinction with call it, you know, the fundamental uh, political principles or legal principles of of this country. They're they're not being lived up to again. Is is always King's line? It seems to me. Whereas Malcolm X seems to say the whole thing is even if we lived up to our political principles, the things we claim to be true, it wouldn't be good enough. Right, right, because for X, as he says in The Ballad or the Bullet, again, going back to that speech, um, right, there is no American dream for the black man. There is right. only an American nightmare, which is Perfect. why going back to David's earlier point, right, about what does it mean to be an American for Malcolm X, it's to, to be white, that the black man and black woman have no place in the American dream. They might be, he, right, he presents the the analogy of the, the dinner table, right? We might all be sitting around the dinner table together, but on my plate, there's nothing. I'm not eating anything while you're enjoying everything. How can you call me a diner just because I'm sitting here and I have an empty plate before me? I'm not actually right. eating like the rest of you. How can I be said to be participating in this right, so-called American dream? Um, I, have no, I have no place in this. And, and this sort of presages what King is doing later in his life, where he's saying, you know, we have to have economic justice as well, not just a political and constitutional justice. Right. Uh, we got a question from Nick about um, X's call to work through the UN. 
and I think this fits perfectly to the discussion we're, we're having here um, and, and where Malcolm X is saying, you know, because you can't work with the existing system uh, and it's, it's illegitimate. I mean, you know, you had mentioned earlier, Jason, that he calls for the expulsion of senators. I mean, they're not legitimately senators mm -hmm. uh, under the, the very terms of this Constitution because the, of the denial of the right to vote uh, to so many. So they have a, an illegitimate monopoly uh, on power. Uh, so if we can't get change here, we, we should go to the UN. Uh, and he says, um, you can take Uncle Sam before a world court. This is on page eight. The only level you can do it on is the level of human rights. Civil rights keeps you under his restrictions, under his jurisdiction. Civil rights keeps you in his pocket. Civil rights means you're asking Uncle Sam to treat you right. Human rights are something you were born with. They are your God-given rights. So here Malcolm X is referencing where these rights come from, right? Natural law. And that this is the higher power to which we answer. And I mean, I don't want to stretch the comparison, but when, when um, uh, Martin Luther King, as we noted, is saying, there's nothing sacred about law itself. Uh, it's whether the law is just or not. What are those, how do we distinguish between a just and an unjust law? Yeah, so, and that's we, the very question that King raises in that next paragraph of the Birmingham jail letter. Right now, what is the difference between the two, a just versus an unjust law? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? I'm quoting here, paragraph 16, a just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. So, David, you're saying you, you see that sort of understanding of, of the nature of law in Malcolm X as well, where he resorts to, to human law as above the civil law, King doing the same thing here, going to the, the moral law or the law of God above that of the, the human law. When it comes to determining justice, the justice of the law. Right? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and X is also saying, so we have to go to a higher authority, uh, the UN, and, and to directly answer Nick's question, why didn't that work? Well, because the United States had one of the five seats on the Security Council and, and had a great deal of power and influence within the UN and could block uh, any measure by African-Americans or their international allies. I mean, because that would be the pathway into the UN. And I think that's what Malcolm X is saying is that uh, let's get some uh, uh, nations that have broken away from colonialism um, to, to, to press, to put Uncle Sam's feet to the fire uh, on, on the lack of justice um, and, and freedom in, within uh, his own borders. Those are great. Those are great points. And again, it just uh, the way both of you are framing this reminds me that is uh, our friend, uh, David, I know you know him, Peter Myers was here a few weeks ago and gave a talk. Um, and a part of his talk was he made the distinction between what some people call the early king and the later king. Um, and he mentioned kings, king in a certain sense seemed to become more extreme and radical. But, but what you're, what I think in light of what you're saying here, correct me if I'm wrong, is king maybe move to the next stage. I mean, we know he kind of went down the road of so, used the language of socialism and things like this, but, but his next stage was to elevate civil rights from being a black issue to a human issue. It's a, really a human rights issue. And I see that as a, a, to go back to your call earlier to look at the similarities, that's a real similarity with, with X. Yeah, and in some ways, I mean, it, it's, it's mainstream, right? Because what, what, Martin Luther King is doing in 67, 68 is really building upon what Franklin D. Roosevelt called the Economic Bill of Rights, mm. um, which he's calling for 
in either his second to last or his last State of the Union. 44, 1944. Yeah, yeah. That's a great connection, David. Go ahead, please. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I mean, and for Roosevelt, this is just a natural extension of the New Deal. Um, you know, we all know about his call for the four freedoms before the U.S. is in the war to build support for helping uh, Great Britain in particular uh, to protect democracy. But for Roosevelt, uh, like King, uh, it's not enough to be free from fear, uh, to have freedom of speech and, and thought and religion. Uh, you have to have a, a, a decent standard of living. And so in that speech, in the, in the Economic Bill of Rights, Roosevelt is laying the groundwork for that. Now, for Roosevelt's political opponents, that would count as radical because they see that as a, a further pathway to much bigger government and to, to social socialization. Um, but I think we can call it mainstream in the sense that when, when, a, when a president who's been you know, elected several times is calling for this, there's going to be debate about it, but it's within the system. And so for King to do that, uh, I think, is, is, is by that measure fairly mainstream and moderate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and more than 20 years had passed between the two. So by the late 1960s, the ideas expressed in the Second Bill of Rights speech from 1944 are more mainstream. Well, that's right. interesting. Yeah. And we might also note that, you know, King is calling for a, a version of the great society that Johnson had been trying uh, to build. But by 67, 68, Johnson is, is, it sees King as a, as a betrayer uh, because he's spoken out against the war uh, in Vietnam. Yeah. Now, this is fascinating because, I mean, you're, David, your reference to FDR and the Economic Bill of Rights... Uh, I mean, in a sense, what, what FDR is doing is laying out a national, uh, a lot of everything FDR does is nat moving things to a national basis, right? Whether it's administrative centralization, but, but also um, uh, uh, trying to find the right, right way to put this. The, the, the 1944 State of the Union address with this economic bill of rights is, again, it seems to me another way of moving of stating that there are certain rights that are national in scope is not the right reason that apply to all regard because we know that a, that a lot of the a lot of the the, um, the, the, the the sort of obstacles to progress if you will in the minds of those who were calling for progress between 1900 and the New Deal was the was the continued insistence of the states to you know maintain authority uh, and control over various things within their own, you know, authority. Um, what, what am I trying to do? What it, what it reminds me of is, is a, a kind of parallel to, to the civil rights movement, especially after 1950, to, to put, to get a, 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 a more national basis. That's not the right way to put it. To move away, the, it seems to me part of the problem with civil rights in the 20th century is, has to do with the extent to which states are able to decide for themselves on an individual basis what their own laws with regard to rights are. And I'm sorry, I'm not being very clear here. Or whether or not they, they want to even enforce the 15th Amendment. Or exactly. Yeah, right. I mean, what it seems to me what you see after the 1950s, whether it's, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the Brown v. Board case, uh, desegregation at Little Rock, uh, and, and leading up to the, the, the voting right, the Civil Rights Act in 64 and then the, the Voting Rights Act in 65, is a, is a desire to, to 
expand the kind of national control or inter, I don't want to say interference, but intervention perhaps into these things. And that seemed to me to be a big part of the struggle as well that Dr. King, I think, is very aware of and other leaders of the civil rights movement are very aware of that if there's going to be any success in this, it's going to take a kind of national effort. And it means we're probably going to need the support and intervention of national power into these things, because so long as the states are left free to, as Jason was just saying, to run roughshod over the civil rights amendments uh, from from the you know from the post Civil War, uh, from after the Civil War, nothing's going to get done. And I mean, you know, I mean, little things make me think of this too. I, I noticed um, in reading up on this a while back that um, it, it, back to the march at Selma, when the the sheriff, I believe it was Dallas County, right, it was the sheriff yeah. of Dallas mm-hmm. County. Uh, when heard when he heard that the march was going to take place, he, he he issued a call for every eligible male in the county to show up to be deputized. And I, would, I, I don't remember where I read this, but it was, I was amazed at how many of these people were members of states' rights organizations. Right? Not they remember some of them were part of the KKK, but a lot of them were 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 there were these states' rights. There were still these states' rights uh, organizations that that. Um, that uh, were primarily motivated on racial grounds. That is, they were they were they were organizations to argue for and defend the right of states to have their own laws, including Jim Crow laws. Um, anyway, I'm rambling at this point, but this this tendency, this this need to make this a national um, a, na- a national um, issue, and, and and invoke greater and greater national uh, authority and intervention in this. It, had to be something that Dr. King and others were were very aware of as well. Yeah, very much so. And I mean, this is one of the reasons why uh, historians and scholars often call the post-World War II civil rights movement the second reconstruction, because uh, the Civil Rights Act and, and the Voting Rights Act, these are this is really enabling legislation to, to fulfill the 14th and 15th Amendments. Uh, to make a brief connection to the, to the Brown v. Board, uh, decision. I mean, that is a 14th Amendment decision. Uh, and, and, and there the court is reversing Plessy v. Ferguson by ruling about something that had been obvious in practice, uh, even at the time Plessy was delivered, that that separation is inherently uh, unequal and, and, and it can never be fulfilled uh, equal separation in practice under the, the U.S. Uh, Constitution. Yeah, very well put. Very well stated. Well, we have a um, a couple of questions, and they're both similar. Uh, one's from Marianne, and the other's from Laura. Um, on this, uh, they both approach. It's interesting. They both come to the same question, but from different different avenues. So I'll just read them both. Marianne asks, "Could you extend King's argument about unjust laws being against moral laws?" Um, in she mentions the gun control debate today, but I think she's really referencing here. In what way might the students call for protection and safety in schools be called a civil rights issue? And then Laura asks, going back to the beginning, about only through crisis does government change. What parallels can we draw between the nonviolence movement of the 1960s and what is going on today in the country in regards to gun violence? So, and both raising the question of gun violence, but if I could broaden that, perhaps maybe the question is to what extent has uh, to what extent did the, um, the civil rights movement in the way we've been describing it, to what extent have we carried that over as part of who we are as Americans and how we approach uh, 
continue to approach uh, crises or issues or dilemmas. Either of you want to tackle those? Well, I, I think the nonviolent, uh, peaceful, largely peaceful protests that we've we've seen in in the modern day over a, a myriad of of various issues um, are one result of what uh, of the civil rights era of the 1960s and uh, MLK's nonviolent direct action. Um, they use that as as the model, um, that as the the standard for how to uh, urge the public to to get behind uh, a certain issue whether it's it's gun control or or whatever that this seems to be the the main avenue for uh, directing change for um, for calling attention to um, possible injustices in the the law itself um, which I think is which I think is a good thing uh, that is to say that to call attention to unjust laws, we're going back to we're going back to King and not Malcolm X, to put it one way. Yeah, to and to build off that, and I'd like to fold in a quick answer to a question Pete uh, asked in the chat feature uh, that you see some of the the same practices um, that limit uh, African Americans and and deny them freedom and opportunity. Uh, during this era being applied to other non-whites, American Indians, uh, Latinos and Latinas, for example. Uh, why did they develop their uh, separate protest uh, movements, Pete asked. Uh, and at, I, would, I would say that what we see happening in the late 60s and early 70s is this expansion of the rights revolution that builds upon the model uh, and practices and results of the civil rights movement. And that applies as well to, the, to women's rights movements in, in the 1960s and 70s. And a lot of the leaders of, of, of that movement um, come out of the civil rights movement where they experience uh, a lot of sexism. Uh, so there's this expansion in the 1970s and into the 1980s. Um, so just to give one specific example, the American Indian movement, uh, AIM, um, which owes a lot to um, the black power movement uh, and to civil rights uh, as well. There are many other examples could be uh, cited here. And so I think that continues to uh, our, our own day where we, we see um, how much uh, the civil rights movement of, of King in particular um, has provided a model for action uh, today. Um, I think one thing that should also be pointed out is that the black power movement for a long time was seen by scholars as sort of a wrong turn, like where did it go wrong because it's so seen or presented as extreme uh, and radical and ineffective. Um, but a lot of scholars have, have revised that interpretation and, and, and see black power having a lot more in common with what, what King was, was trying to do. And, and that's something I've tried to emphasize in the commonalities between Malcolm X and, and, and Martin Luther uh, King. And so I think one inquiry or, or one thing that could be talked about is to what extent uh, has, has the black power movement or the Black Panthers influenced uh, protest uh, and, and action today as, as well. Yeah, great, great thoughts from both of you. That's a very, both two very thoughtful approaches to those, to those questions. Um, so we have a we have a few minutes left. So um, I'm going to step back a little bit. These have been really thoughtful, interesting, lots of great details and and about about this that I that I was not aware of. But I want to step back, broad picture here again, in the scope of the civil rights movement. Then 
how important was the event at Selma, the marches at Selma, and especially the uh, that particular, the first march that was so bloody? Um, I guess I'm a, I'm asking how how it's kind of, kind of an unfair question to ask how important was it, but how did that affect perhaps the the future uh, direction of of, of civil rights uh, movement? Uh, civil rights movement in the country. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, we're we're still talking about it more than fifty years later. Uh, that's one indicator of its of its lasting importance and, and significance, not just for the civil rights movement itself, but um, for American history. Um, and that question, which we brought up at the beginning of the, the conversation, what it means to be an American. Uh, I think that in conjunction with other uh, events of the civil rights era that we've we've mentioned here, the the, the bus boycotts, um, as well as right Birmingham in 1963, Bull Connor, uh, that these events in in quick succession um, really helped to uh, to create a lasting impression on the American identity, on the sense of urgency when it comes to fulfilling the principles of the Declaration of Independence for all Americans. Uh, as King says in his I Have a Dream speech that he's there to cash that check, to cash that, that promissory letter um, bequeathed to us from our, our founders uh, from 1776. Um, that, uh, that itself is still going on today. And uh, I think uh, the events of, of Selma and Bloody Sunday um, really brought that into the the late 20th century and even today and as you know as continues to force us to to recognize with uh, uh, to, to to recognize and to grapple with um, with the the problems the the very real political and social problems that go along with trying to achieve that yeah, yeah well, well said Jason yeah. I would add that um, Bloody Sunday and Selma and the Voting Rights Act that follows is historically significant because it shows an awareness and a recognition that that federal government action um, and very substantial federal action uh, had to happen. Um, Supreme Court rulings, not enough. Uh, executive orders, not enough. I mean, think about the 1960 election. John F. Kennedy is running saying, well, you know, with the stroke of a pen, I can um, end racial segregation in, in public housing supported by, by federal monies. And then he's slow to do it. Now, even if he had done it right away, we're still talking about, uh, um, I mean, it's, it's a um, significant action, but it's not a huge action. But just a few years later, we're talking about something as, as profound and important as, as the Voting Rights Act. And, and I mean... We won't, don't know what would have happened with that legislation without Bloody Sunday. But when you look at the pattern and how crisis provoked action, and uh, this is a prime example of that. Yeah, no, that's, that's fantastic. By the way, I think that's a very good point, David. There is, um, again, Supreme Court decisions, judicial decisions, executive orders, they're not totally insignificant, but there's not a sense of real permanent change in a sense of establishing a, a kind of character, even in a legal, not just in a legal, but a moral sense. An act of Congress has much more authority in that sense. An, an amendment, of course, is perhaps the ultimate 
uh, uh, manifestation of that. But uh, but that's a great point. So can we can you say something? We just have a couple of minutes, but Kennedy's come up a couple of times, and and the Kennedy administration didn't have it doesn't have a it didn't have much of a. a well, it, it was it was criticized, right, by uh, I believe Dr. King and others were actually quite critical of Kennedy and, and especially his brother Robert, right. So, um, for some of their failures to take action when they thought that they could take action, do you think um, Johnson learned from that at all? Um, I'm, I'm not trying to say that Johnson was simply a politician, although I've heard people say he was a politician first and a a man of principle second. Uh, I'm not sure how true that is, but did Johnson learn anything from the mistakes of the Kennedy administration or or perhaps you want to challenge the notion that there were mistakes? I'm not sure. Well, I think the big difference is that um, as Kennedy slowly comes around on the issue of civil rights, uh, he finds the Dixiecrats to be a wall he cannot get over. Uh, it takes someone like Johnson to peel away the opposition, uh, to grind down people like uh, Richard Russell, uh, and, and and get enough votes corralled in Congress to pass the legislation, and that begs the question of well, why did why did Johnson do this? And I I think for one, he he believed he came around to believe it was the right thing to do. And, and, and there's a lot of evidence where we see Johnson making this change of heart and mind. And, and that doesn't mean he began accepting African-Americans as his equals. I mean, he was a complex individual and right. um, continued to, you know, say racist things. But, but, but he was, in his own mind and in, try, in his practices as president, trying to draw a distinction between, you know, what, what do we do? What's the right thing to do as, as a country? And I think he thought, it, he also believed it was important to, to do this because Kennedy had called for such legislation after the March on Washington in 1963. Mm -hmm. uh, and then with his assassination, Johnson leverages that. Like, we've, this is the, the legacy of our fallen president we need to, to fulfill. So mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a complex mix of, of principle and, and uh, politics. Yeah. I would completely agree with that. Uh, the only thing I would, I would add is that I think that LBJ um, learned a lot more from FDR than he did from JFK, mm -hmm. right? So we, FDR was another name that came up during the course of our conversation in his second Bill of Rights speech, and LBJ was fond of saying that he wanted to out-Roosevelt Roosevelt. Uh, on those issues like uh, economic and, and social justice. And uh, I think he, uh, during the course of his presidency, that is LBJ's presidency, I think he certainly does that. He does out-Roosevelt Roosevelt. But what, what Johnson's able to do, that's a great point, Jason, what, J, what Johnson's able to do that, that the previous, both previous Roosevelts, for example, weren't able to do, was actually take, was take actual action, real political action, in the face of opposition, political opposition, again, from within his own party, to 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 make civil rights advances, right? I'm thinking of um, Frank, both Franklin Roosevelt and Theodore Roosevelt, but both were, I think, in principle, in favor of the idea of equal rights, um, regardless of race. Uh, both of them used some of that language carefully in their campaigns, and I think both of them once elected, found that 
when they actually tried to speak to that issue. With Theodore Roosevelt, you know, for example, I remember he's talking about, he gives a speech, uh, um, I believe it's state, one of his early State of the Union addresses, calling for an end to lynching and, and, and insisting on equal treatment of blacks. And there's this immediate backlash from within, within uh, his party and from Congress in general. And, and for, politic, for political reasons, Theodore Roosevelt drops that language throughout most of his presidency from that point forward. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt, I believe, does the same thing. Uh, Johnson is, again, as you both pointed out earlier very nicely, there's a lot of opposition, again, especially from within his own party to the, these, these movements, and yet Johnson does it anyway. And again, how he does it and why he does it, as David says, is very complex and, and fascinating and interesting. Um, uh, but, uh, but he is able to do it, so I give him credit for that. Can we ask, we're actually out of time, I apologize. Um, that just flies by so quickly. What would you recommend? Either of you have recommendations for further reading on Selma, on the civil rights movement, on um, the politics that we've been talking about? I'll make one recommendation. It's a, it's a book designed for uh, college classroom use, but I, I think it would be uh, easily usable in, in, in the high school classroom and above and beyond its teaching applicability. It's just a great book to read for further information. And uh, it's entitled Debating the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, and it has two editors, uh, Steve Lawson and Charles Payne, P-A-Y-N-E, Debating the Civil Rights Movement, Steve Lawson and Charles Payne. Both Lawson and Payne write um, essays with, with um, opposing views of the um, civil rights movement. Lawson argues for the um, uh, preponderance of federal action bringing change. And Payne says, no, the federal government was reluctant, had to be pushed to do this. It was grassroots activism. And, and he looks at not just Martin Luther King, but, but other movements as well. And, and, and ordinary heroes are a part of his essay. I think that's a really great takeaway. So that would be my, my single recommendation for further reading. Great. Yeah, and if I would give a recommendation for maybe some more, more primary documents to read, um, I, uh, I always enjoy Martin Luther King Jr.'s Why We Can't Wait, a collection of essays uh, surrounding the events of um, Birmingham, Alabama in 1963. Fantastic. Thank you both very much. And thanks for joining us. That was, uh, that was a great conversation. I learned a great deal um, from both of the gentlemen, and I appreciate your time. And um, before, so before we part, though, let me, I, let me mention... Uh, not to embarrass you, David, I don't think you'd be embarrassed by it, but let me put in a plug for your new book coming out, the sequel to your, your novel, uh, The Dead Don't Bleed. If anybody hasn't read it, it's a fantastic read. Um, your sequel is coming out soon, right? Uh, yeah, in, in July. In July. July 3rd. Can, we, can you tell everybody, I asked earlier, but the, it's a great title. Can you say the title? Oh, sure. It's, uh, the title of the sequel is uh, Rip the Angels from Heaven, and it's a reference to the atomic bomb test which is a major part of the story, the yeah. test on July 16th, 1945 in New Mexico. They're fantastic. Uh, the, the, the Don't Bleed is a fantastic novel. I'm sure the sequel will be too, and very rooted in history. So for people joining us who love history, it's a, you'll find it a fun read. Gentlemen, thanks, thanks again Chris. very much. Really appreciate your thoughts and time this morning. Yeah, thank you, Chris, and thanks, Jeremy and uh, Jason and everybody who joined us. Uh, great yeah. questions. Yeah. yeah thanks, yes, thanks, everyone. Thank you. Sorry, uh, I think we got to most of them. Those were great questions. Um, don't forget, uh, if you're joining us, to look for your email in the next uh, few days with the link for the Certificate of Participation. 
Uh, if you like these kinds of conversations, let me put in a plug for our master's program. We have these conversations in our classes. So if you're not familiar with our MAG program, as it's called, uh, take a look at that online. You can just go to do a Google search for, for MAHG and it'll bring you right to our website. Our next Saturday webinar will be April 7th and it'll be on Watergate. And we'll be joined by David Alvis of Wofford College and Stephen Toodle of the College of the Sequoias. So hope to see you all then. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs, at TAH.org slash webinars, or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.